Family Law Podcast brought to you by Pump Court Chambers. Each week we look at relevant issues concerning family law and once a month we provide a how-to or nutshell guide to a topic of relevance. I'm your host Tara Lyons and today I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague Mark Dubbery who will be talking to us about the thorny issue of third-party interests and intervener proceedings in financial remedies cases. Mark Dubbery is an expert in financial remedies cases, particularly those involving third-party interests. He's also an expert in civil matters such as trusts, contentious probate and inheritance disputes. And on top of that, if that wasn't enough, he's also an experienced mediator. He appears in the Legal 500 where he's ranked as a tier one leading junior and is described as extremely knowledgeable and completely unflappable. And as an old pupil of his myself, I can vouch for that. And I'm delighted to have him on our podcast today. Mark, hello and welcome. Hello, thank you very much indeed for having me. Well, we're going to be talking today about third party interests, which you um, uh, often uh, come across and represent parties on all sides um, of the fences. But just taking it back to basics, when would one wish or need to join a third party in financial remedies cases? The the absolute crux of it is asking yourself if at the end of the day you might need to take enforcement proceedings against someone other than the husband or wife, depending on which side of the fence you're on. So are there assets that you are alleging form part of the matrimonial pot uh, that are uh, legally or beneficially held uh, by somebody else? Uh, Or is there uh, a trust that you might want to attack? Um, Or or is there uh, an issue that needs to be resolved with a third party uh, which arises out of the same facts and matters as the subject matter of the financial remedy proceedings. Okay, and how do we distinguish a joinder of third parties from those cases in which a third party is invited to intervene? Um, Joinder is a, uh, joinder is, is a mandatory process. If a party is joined to the proceedings, they remain a party to the proceedings unless and until uh, the court determines that they don't need to be. Now, usually the third party issue will be determined as a preliminary issue uh, prior to the FDR, uh, and then that party can go their own way and the financial remedy proceedings uh, will continue. Um, Inviting a party to intervene is a a softer, more courteous approach. Uh, And and typically, uh, the court will invite trustees to intervene uh, rather than just just joining them. Um, It's it's, it's deemed a a less aggressive approach. So, Mark, you've spoken to us about um, situations where the husband or, or wife are alleging uh, that they have uh, an interest in property owned by a third party. 
But what about a situation where a third party is asserting an interest in property owned by the husband or wife? Is that a situation in which they might be invited to intervene rather than mandatorily joined? Uh, yes, absolutely. Although um, quite, quite often they will be the one making the application for joinder. Um, so, some of your uh, listeners uh, will be old enough, uh, as am I, to remember the days of the graduated fee scheme where you got various bolt-ons and bonuses depending on the features of the case. And I was able to make my opponent's day at court once by introducing him to the uh, brother-in-law who was from overseas and alleging that he had an interest in the matrimonial home, which I think ticked every box on the form in, in, in one yeah. moment. Uh, but no, absolutely. Um, if, and it's increasingly common these days, um, a, a couple at the, the outset of a relationship or marriage are, are gifted or, or lent, or let's use a neutral expression, come into receipt of a significant amount of money to assist them in the purchase of a matrimonial home, um, then there may well be issues as, as to whether the person who advanced that money uh, has a beneficial interest in it. Uh, also, uh, it's not at all uncommon to have cases where you have uh, several generations of a family living together uh, mm. in a property and there may be issues as to the ownership uh, as between the generations. I, I myself remember very well a case from a couple of years ago where uh, I was representing a husband and a, another member of Chambers was representing his mother uh, who, who had advanced uh, the entire proceeds of sale of her own home when she became a widow to move in with the husband and wife. Uh, and in fact, the husband and wife had, had then remortgaged this property several times such that the, the mother-in-law was not only entitled to the whole of the equity in the home, she also secured a money judgment against the husband and wife um, b b because they'd, they'd been helping themselves to her equity. Yeah. And I want to ask you in a moment, um, about the procedure uh, that that we need to bear in mind when we're thinking about joining a person. But yeah. before that, if I may, because this is something I encounter a lot, um, what do you think about those cases in which uh, a party seeks to join a third party um, when... In fact, all they are alleging is that uh, the third party loaned their money. And rather than having a, a direct interest, is that the way to go? Uh, Very often it won't be. I mean, what, what one needs to ask is, um, is, is there any genuine contention uh, about the nature of this debt? If not, uh, then it, it doesn't need to be established in the proceedings. Uh, and, and one might as easily in, enforce a debt against the third party. Um, if, on the other hand, there is controversy between the husband and wife uh, as to whether an advance was a loan or um, a, an advance which gave rise to a beneficial interest in their property, uh, or, or if there is controversy between them as to whether money advanced to a third party by one of them was a gift or a loan, yes. then, it, then it may be necessary to resolve yes. that issue prior to an FDR. Yes. 
because I mean, everyone, and we'll go on to this in a moment as well, mm -hmm. but everyone where, when they think of third party joinder, understandably get very concerned about the cost implications of that. And so trying to limit joinder as much as yeah, possible. And, 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 right, and rightly so. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I think this is where uh, a bit of knowledge of civil procedure and the CPR is a very valuable thing because one doesn't or, or shouldn't just go around um, issuing applications and launching claims to, to resolve civil disputes. The proper approach is to write a letter of claim and define the extent and nature of issues between the parties. So, so in your, your debt claim, for example, the proper thing to do is, is approach that third party uh, and see if there is actually um, uh, an issue that needs to be resolved. So turning now then to, to the appropriate procedure, and it seems that you're emphasising, in, in fact, um, what's got to be followed prior to an application being made. Are you saying that a, a family law version of a letter of a claim is best practice? Yes, I mean, there, there, there may be cases where urgency uh, doesn't permit or, or you only learn of something at the, the last minute and the first appointment is, is, is imminent or underway. But, but it's normally good practice to uh, explore uh, what the third party's response to this dispute is. Now, it, it's I, probably all of our experience that very often the, the third party is effectively on a team with one or other spouse, but that's not invariably the case. Yes. And so narrowing the issues as much as possible by correspondence is in everyone's interests again. Yeah, absolutely. And these civil issues will often be uh, suitable for mediation, civil mediation. And again, if you talk to civil practitioners who, who do a lot of work involving uh, constructive trust, proprietary estoppel, similar, uh, they will tell you that, that only a, a small fraction of those claims get issued. Um, many, many of them are resolved by ADR, often mediation before issue. And there are plenty of civil mediators out there with plenty of experience of matrimonial finance proceedings. Uh, and it's often... Uh, possible to, to resolve all of these issues in the round. Mm. And if, if that's not possible, you've written the, the letter of claim that hasn't yielded the response that you want. Yeah. What are the next steps in terms of procedure that practitioners need to be thinking about when it comes to joining a third party? Well, the, the, the family proceedings rules set out the... Um, the, 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 the procedure quite clearly, it's uh, Rule 926B. Uh, it's up to uh, the court or, or an existing party to the proceedings or a third party who wishes to be joined to the proceedings to make the application. And that's, that's all um, pretty straightforward. I think where the procedure normally goes wrong is... Um, we know from GW and RW that the court should then direct the matter to be resolved 
as if it were chancery proceedings. And that usually involves as a first step statements of case yes. uh, being exchanged by the parties. Uh, and this is where I, I think I've, I've seen most often things go off the rails a bit. Yes. Um, the, the term statements of case is not infrequently completely misunderstood. Uh, what, what the court is directing at that stage is not the parties to file statements of evidence dealing with the matters in dispute. What the court wants is pleadings, particulars yeah. of claim and a defence in all by name. Uh, and and um, as I say, that, that, that is where these things most often go off the rails because it's a very good discipline and it's something that one should always ask oneself before making an application to join a party. Can I plead a, a compelling case against them? Because if the elements of a constructive trust or a proprietary estoppel aren't there, it's no good expecting the court just to do broad justice in the round. That's simply not available where third parties are concerned. And Mark, when, when um, we're thinking about our points of claim uh, or our statements of case, whatever term you want to use to describe it, do we need to, you know, remind ourselves of our drafting modules uh, on the bar course and, yes. or, and you know uh, draft pleadings as if they are civil pleadings or is there a bit more latitude in uh, family proceedings to the drafting? It, it's not unknown to be lucky and, and, and come across a district judge who will permit a bit of latitude on this particularly if there are litigants in person involved, but I think it's a very dangerous game. Apart from anything, properly drafted pleadings um, are the first step uh, to, to putting forward a compelling case at trial. If it's not possible to do that, you, you want to know as early as possible, or if you're having difficulty doing it, you want to be aware of the problems and put them right. And in terms of um, making the application to join, we, we know that the FPR says as soon as possible, doesn't it? Yes. Um, what is as soon as possible in your mind? It, in, in most cases, it should, in my view, be raised at the first appointment. Okay. Um, because... If things proceed properly, the, the, the order of events should be first appointment, resolution of the preliminary issue, and then an FDR if it's still necessary after the preliminary issue is resolved, because the preliminary issue will determine what, what the um, relevant assets are for the financial rent remedy proceedings. Now, of course, there will be cases where uh, matters only become apparent uh, after um, questionnaires are raised or um, clients will only raise relevant material uh, part of the way down the line. So if one becomes aware of these issues between first appointment and FDR, uh, I think you need to be making a, a freestanding application. I think if you turn up at the FDR and raise the issue, it's almost inevitable the FDR will be adjourned and you may well be going down for the cost of that. 
Um, and in terms of uh, those cases involving very modest assets, yeah. uh, certainly it's my experience that uh, ad advocates will try and um, sort of defer the issue of, of the joinder uh, to after the FDR in the hope that given the modesty of the assets, uh, the parties will be able to reach a resolution. I know that's, uh, that goes against the approach required in cases like TL and ML, yeah. but to your mind, is, is there any advantage of approaching it in that way? I mean, one, one can sympathise uh, with that approach and one can see that in, if, if the assets are modest and the assets at large in the intervention are even more modest, then there may be real proportionality issues about resolving the issue. And if that is the case, um, then, then one can understand the parties deciding that the argument isn't worth the candle. But if that is the case, you have to be prepared for the judge at the FDR to say, well, you're alleging this, you haven't sought to establish it, you haven't joined the third party, so what, what, what can I do uh, but proceed on the basis that that is an unproven allegation? Mm. Mm. So it's just not worth the risk, although it will cost more. I wouldn't put it that bluntly or, or I wouldn't, wouldn't, make, wouldn't, wouldn't put it as a blanket assertion because there will often be times where you can perfectly reasonably conclude that the cost risk just doesn't warrant merit pursuing the issue. Yes. Um, you know, if, if you're talking about an interest of two or three percent in a in a family home and it's going to cost forty or fifty thousand pounds to resolve, the chances are you'll yeah. just have to have to take a realistic view on the issue and swallow it. Yeah. And are there any other matters of procedure that we need to bear in mind uh, following the points of claim, points of defence being served? Uh, well, once you've had an exchange of pleadings, obviously you want to look carefully and see if there's um, any applications disclosure that need to be made because the third parties um, will not have been subject to the questionnaires and requests for information and documents. So there may well be uh, um, matters of disclosure to address. And there may well be matters of expert evidence to address. And it's important to remember that when you're dealing with constructive trusts and proprietary estoppel, uh, or if you're looking at issues of equitable accounting over a long period of ownership of a, a home or a business, you, you might well want much more complicated expert evidence than you would want in a, a typical matrimonial finance case where you're just looking for the valuation of assets at the date of trial. Um, you may well want uh, valuations at various points in history. You may want to know what the rental uh, value of a property was um, in each year of ownership. So uh, you need to think quite carefully about any expert evidence that might be required. That's very helpful because I think that that's often something that, that gets overlooked, in fact, in third party uh, proceedings. And I definitely. It, I've, I've seen people ask, asking judges for um, 
you know, sort of comp compensatory awards for being kept mm. out of possession of a property without any evidence as to its rental value. Mm. And if it's done on a single joint expert basis, it's going to be very difficult for the other party if the court finds that the principle of occupation, rent or equitable accounting um, is invoked, then, you know, once you've got this SJAE giving a, giving its opinion on the rental yield, it's, it's, it's going to be difficult to unravel that, isn't it? So an important thing to get if you're yeah, claiming absolutely. an occupation rent. But, but, but of course, bear in mind when that report comes in, if there are things in it which are unhelpful, you've always got the opportunity to ask questions. And surveyors, just like um, most experts in compiling a report, will often build in certain assumptions. Uh, and those assumptions are, are often open to challenge. So uh, sometimes they'll, they'll, they'll take a a notional rental yield rather than going back and looking at actual rental yields historically and that may or may not be be apt if for example the property is in an area that has uh, very much up and come over the last decade it it, it may not be safe to just to do that on a straight line basis and just moving on slightly mark because as family practitioners we we may not feel as confident in, in um, considering trusts uh, and issues of proprietary estoppel. Yeah. Are you able to guide us through the, the basics of the different sorts of trusts and yes. I, I mean, considerations for proprietary estoppel? I, I, I'm sure it goes without saying that one one could spend a whole day or, or, or a whole term de dealing with these yeah. issues, but the, the, the basics are, are are pretty straightforward. And sometimes the the absolute fundamentals get missed. Mm -hmm. uh, one mistake that's not uncommon um, is to jump to a resulting or constructive trust analysis. That is to look at the arrangement between the parties or their respective contributions without first looking to see whether there's an express trust. Yeah. Uh, because if there is, then we know from Pancania and Chandegra and, uh, and other cases that unless you can get that express trust set aside, you're, you're stuck with it. Now, yeah. there may be arguments about presumed undue influence or mutual mistake or fraud or undue influence but um if if you haven't got uh, one of those cases then you're, you're you're stuck with your express trust that there may be issues of rectification but if there's a, a rectification claim you're just going to change one express trust into another uh, you're, you're you're still stuck with it but you might be able to turn it into a more favorable one um and so it actually would you say that one of the first things when you're even thinking about joining a third party or looking at interests in a property is to obtain the conveyancing file and have a look at the tr1 see if Absolutely. there is that express trust well get 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 the conveyancing file um check the tr1 um it is still the case that that registries 
sacrifice. But uh, you know, you're I think we with... missed you slightly there, Mark. Sorry, could you repeat that? I think the line went a bit funny. No, no problem. Um, what what I was saying was yes, absolutely. The the conveyancing file has to be the starting point. The TR one has to be uh, a starting point. Um, it is still the case that you will have cases where properties were acquired either before. Uh, form TR1 came in or in the days where yeah. land registry wasn't terribly um, uh, hot on, on it and, and they allowed incomplete or ambiguous TR1s to come in. Um, now, just because the TR1 doesn't answer the question, there may on, on the conveyancing file uh, be a deed uh, which the parties have entered into. Yeah. Uh, you, you may have a draft deed which was never executed, which that normally leads to an argument between the parties, one saying that the draft deed reflects their joint intention and the other saying that the reason it wasn't executed was yes. because it didn't reflect their yes. joint intention. Um, so yeah. the draft yeah. deed is often as much a curse as it is a blessing. Uh, but uh, you will often uh, also have a questionnaire that the conveyancing solicitor has sent to the parties asking them what their joint intention is Yes. Uh, and, and very often, if that is completed and signed by the parties, then that will comply with the requirements for a declaration of trust. Right. Yeah. So, so that file can be incredibly illuminating. Yes, absolutely. And, and if it isn't, well, it, it can be illuminating without being helpful, of course. Mm. What, what it can do is, is show you the nature of the disagreement between the parties. I, it's interesting when one looks at all the, the leading cases in this area, the courts are always talking about the search for the parties' joint intention. Mm -hmm. And my experience over the years is the very often the reason these cases become problematic is because it's highly likely the parties didn't have a joint intention, yeah. knew, knew they didn't have a joint intention, and dodged the issue. Yeah. And so you've, you've told us about the express trusts and yeah. in speaking, you've also mentioned uh, common intention yes. uh, trusts. Now, there are two sorts, aren't there, of, of common intention trusts. Can you just take us through that? Yeah, if you go back to, to Lloyds Bank and Rosses in, in 1990, Lord Bridge splits them into limb one and limb two cases. Limb one cases are, are those where you have an express agreement between the parties. Uh, I think he says it has to be based on uh, evidence of actual conversations, no matter how imprecisely remembered. Uh, but it has to be an agreement between the parties to share the beneficial interest of the property. Now, of course, there's nothing more suspicious than a witness statement that says, uh, Derek and I went to the Rose and Crown after looking around Primrose Cottage uh, and he said to me, darling, I'd like to share the beneficial interest of this property with you. Also, <laughs> one has to be a bit more, <laughs> bit more subtle than that. Yes. Uh, and, and, and often the, the, the meat of the distinction is between sharing a home and sharing a house. You know, yeah. Is it our house? Is it your house as much as it is mine? Those, those, those sorts of conversations. Yes. Um, once you've got that express agreement to share, you only need to show some detriment uh, for the parties to be held to their bargain, e even if the bargain bears no relation 
to their contributions uh, to the property. A case okay. called uh, Paris and Williams that deals with that. And can you give us some examples of detriment, the sorts of things you might be looking for? Yes. Um, I mean, obviously, any financial contribution uh, is, is, is detriment, but also people might give up um, a secure tenancy or, or, or they might give up a, 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 a well-paid job to move across the country. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be money going into the property. Um, when you get on to limb two, th those are the cases where there's no um, evidence at express agreement, but the, part, but the court is having to infer from the party's conduct the intention to share. Uh, what Lord Bridge says is uh, that, that there, the only contribution, the only evidence that is sufficient is a contribution either to the deposit uh, or the mortgage payments. But that, that, that has since been, um, well, there are two ways of looking at it. In Stack and Dowden, I think both Lord Nichols and Baroness Hale, Hale yes. uh, forgive me, Lord Walker and Baroness Hale, yes. uh, say, say in effect that the law has moved on from there. Uh, but but um, in fact, I, 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 I think it's right to say that Lord Bridge may well have gone a little far in, in putting it quite as... Um, quite as hard as he did because if you go back to Gissing and Gissing there there it's clear that there are cases uh, where the parties will divide up their household expenditure uh, such that one is paying the mortgage and another is paying everything else yes. uh, and, and, and that will still be evidence of an intention to share. But the critical thing to bear in mind in these cases is it is not the case that a contribution towards the mortgage automatically gives rise to a constructive trust. Uh, you're always looking at evidence of the party's intention. Okay. And the, co the contribution, as you've said, does not always have to be financial. Yeah. Can you give us some examples of some non financial contributions that suffice that are significant or enough um the the i, I think it, it's easier to give you examples of one that don't okay because there, there are plenty of sole name cases that is to say cases where one party already owns the house and another um either comes to live there or uh, the, the the couple are together at the time of acquisition but it goes into one name only where, where the other does an awful lot by way of sort of manual labor and um, decorating and, and furnishing the property. And the courts will very often say, well, that, that is it, as easily explained by the fact that it was a home and they wanted it to be uh, a, a comfortable home and, and they wanted their, their family to have the best standard of living possible. They, they won't necessarily presume that um, that 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 contribution is is actuated by a, a financial motive, um, but but as I said, I mean uh, the, the the party who gives up a, a secure accommodation and, and and comes to live in the house, or certainly a, a party who does works that that go well beyond routine maintenance mm. or decoration, mm. but, but once that's once that slips into 
substantive works of improvement. Yeah. Uh, I mean, something we see quite often in matrimonial cases is uh, elderly parents uh, sell up, move in with a son mm. or daughter-in-law, and then there's a, a, a big influx uh, of capital, a, a renovation project, an extension mm. built, um, an attic conversion, whatever it may be. Um, and, and, and that is, is clearly, um, clearly the sort of contribution that, 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 that is good enough. But uh, no, as I say, there, there, there are cases where um, although the, 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 the financial contribution is, is to the general household budget, it's clear that the, the legal owner couldn't have sustained it without, couldn't have sustained the project without that contribution. Mm. Uh, and that contribution is good enough. And guessing and guessing is is an example of that. Um, where um, where you look at a where you have a, a much broader inquiry, it is in those cases where it's clear the parties agreed to share, but there's no evidence as to to what shares. And that's the the Stack and Dowden um, situation. And in Stack and Dowden, Baroness Hale sets out a, a lengthy list of matters that might be relevant in determining the extent of a party's share. Um, but, but those are the cases where the parties are, are joint owners but haven't agreed what their shares are. Those will very often be the cases between spouses. And what about resulting trusts? Because there's a, there's a general um, thought, isn't there, that in a domestic context, you've got to be thinking about the common intention trust and the resulting trusts don't really, aren't really thought to apply. Is that right? Well, um, that was the belief um, until relatively recently. Lasker and Lasker was a case where um, uh, Lord Justice Neuberger, as he was at the time, said that if, the, if the, the acquisition of the property was a commercial project rather than the acquisition of a home, then one looks at a resulting trust, resulting trust being simply the, 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 the presumption that the parties own the property in proportion to their contributions. But in Marr and Colley uh, a couple of years ago, the Privy Council said that Lasca goes too far in drawing that broad distinction. Uh, and that, in fact, the search should always be for the party's actual shared intentions. And so in what context do you, um, would you be looking to assert there's a resulting trust as distinct from a common intention constructive trust? I, I think when you're looking at um, a, a couple, certainly, uh, you're, you're, you're always going to start with a constructive trust analysis now. Yes. Um, I think as as the family relationship gets less and less close, and the opera and the um, the the transaction becomes more and more obviously commercial, uh, it, it will be easier um, to to say that the resulting trust analysis is likely to reflect the party's actual shared intentions. But that doesn't excuse us from the inquiry into what those actual shared intentions are. Okay. Um, I mean, of course, you, 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 if you deal with a lot of cases, as I do, where, where one or occasionally both of the parties are deceased, that, that inquiry is, is very challenging. 
Yeah. Um, and there's a case recently, Constantus and Lissandru, where um, a very elderly gentleman decides uh, to, to revisit a, 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 the acquisition of a property in 1959 and alleges that he made a substantial contribution towards the purchase price and is thus a beneficial owner. Um, the other parties to the transaction sadly uh, now suffer from dementia and aren't able to, to make um, a, a realistic contribution to the proceedings. But, it, but in that case, the judge simply decided that he hadn't overcome the burden of proof. Uh, but, but where there is a, a, a partial or total lack of evidence, uh, then it may be necessary for the, the, the courts to fall back on presumptions. Mm. And what about proprietary estoppel? claims how, how do they tie in um there's a lot of overlap between constructive trusts and proprietary estoppel and indeed in in some of the house of lords and supreme court cases there is a dispute between the um, various judgments as to how how things might pop properly um be characterized and, and there are those who would say that your, your typical farming proprietary estoppel case is actually a species of constructive trust yeah. But, but there are some very important um, distinctions. Um, in a constructive trust case, you're looking for the party's actual shared intention. In a proprietary estoppel case, you're looking at a representation and reliance upon it. Now, it doesn't matter that the representation was, was insincere or dishonest if it is relied upon and reasonably relied upon. So you, there, there isn't that element of, element of commonality. Um, the other very important distinction between a proprietary estoppel case and a constructive trust case is the remedy. So, whereas uh, at the end of Stack and Dowden, the, the court accepts that there, there may be those cases where you simply can't determine what the parties' shared intentions were, so you must impute an intention to them. In proprietary estoppel, the remedy is always discretionary, and there's no end of authority on on how the court goes about uh, exercising that discretion. Um, but the, um, the, the facts in a family situation will, will very often lead to an overlap between the two. Um, if, if, if you have people in a, a family situation representing that, that, that a property is jointly owned or is treated as jointly owned or, or, or will be uh, passed on to the next generation in due course, uh, then you, you, you may well have elements of both present at the same time. And um, for proprietary estoppel claims, uh, I've got a couple of questions. First of all, can a proprietary estoppel claim um, be founded solely on a party's conduct or do there have to be actual representations or words used? Well, um, there are circumstances in which simply standing by and allowing someone to do something is in and of itself a representation. The, the classic case of the father-in-law who stands by and allows his son-in-law to build a house on the father-in-law's land and then tries to turf him off when he's finished uh, the court says no 
um, you by sitting there watching him do it day after day were impliedly representing to him uh, that he would be um, allowed to live in it when he's finished. Uh, it's also the case that, that there's a lot of grey area here sometimes. Thorner and Majors itself, the sort of leading case on, on proprietary estoppel in this context. Um, the representations made in that case were, were, were pretty um, oblique, uh, but the court accepted that uh, they were understood in the context of that family uh, to, to, to mean something, and they were reasonably relied upon to mean that. And so when you're looking at proprietary estoppel claims, then it's not just the representations or the conduct, but it's a context in which those were, the, were made. And I guess that also ties in to uh, the reliance and, and detriment. Yes, yeah, so there's two points to make about that. One, one is the, the authorities are all very clear that, that one can fall into error by compartmentalising the inquiry too much. Yeah. It, it should be a broad, broad inquiry in, in the round and it should be a, a backward-looking inquiry over the whole uh, course of events, as um, Lord Hoffman puts it. The owl of Minerva spreads its wings only with the coming of the dusk. Um, very poetic. Yes. Uh, the, the, the other point um, to, to be made, though, is that Thorner and Major was something of, um, I don't know if revolution puts it slightly too high, um, but, but it followed on from Cobb and Yeoman's Row, where the House of Lords had... Uh, been thought to have really um, clipped the wings of proprietary estoppel. Uh, but, but the reason Cobb and Yeoman's Row was, was so harshly dealt with was because it was property developers um, negotiating expressly uh, subject to contract. Uh, so when uh, Thorner and Majors, which is the typical um, nephew or, or, or second cousin, I think, to be precise, being told, in effect, one day all this will be yours, uh, the farm on which he'd worked for little or nothing for decades. Um, the, the, the court, Lord Scott particularly, uh, acknowledge that it's entirely proper to treat members of a family dealing informally uh, and, and with a great deal of trust, entirely different from professional people of business negotiating subject to contract. And so... If I can just bring this back now to uh, family proceedings um, yeah. and finish off with by asking you what we need to have uh, be aware of when we're thinking about the costs in joinder proceedings. What are the what are the usual rules on, on costs if you've got a third party? Well, the the the, the key to this is the the usual. Um, rule in financial remedy proceedings uh, that, that parties can expect to pay their own costs unless there's been some particular mischief or misconduct does not apply. It's, it's a winner-takes-all jurisdiction in effect. Mm. So if, if you launch an unsuccessful um, claim to a beneficial interest in a property owned by a third party, uh, you can be expecting to pay all of their costs uh, in, in defending that. And uh, that, that can have 
very dramatic effects indeed, because the, these cases, you know, routinely uh, cost tens of thousands, if 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 not into mm. ending proceedings. But when you add in the complexity of having uh, both parties to the marriage and the third party, um, you're you're looking at, at, at massive potential costs. Yeah. So approach with caution. Approach with caution. Um, make full inquiries be before uh, proceeding, uh, and and invite parties to to mediate at an early stage if if there's an issue that that is amenable to mediation. And my experience is nearly all of these issues are. And what about making offers? Um, we've got the new costs rules um, or, or costs implications rather uh, in making timely open offers. How does yeah. that fit in with with third party proceedings? Is there a requirement for a third party, a husband and wife to be putting forward open offers on, on the third party point? Um, I, I, w- I would encourage that, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm a huge fan of mediation, um, not because I'm a mediator, it's the other way around. I became a mediator because I was so impressed uh, at how I saw it working in practice. But mm. um, if if mediation has um, a fault, it's it, it can act as a break on negotiation with parties mm. waiting until the mediation happens. But yeah. Um, I, I would never discourage parties from making sensible um, offers at the earliest possible stage. Mark, thank you so much for joining me. Um, we, I'm sure the listeners will agree, have uh, really had an amazing time listening to uh, your whistle-stop tour through third-party proceedings. Um, it's been incredibly informative, so thank you so much. Well, well, thank you. It's been an enormous pleasure and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Please tune in next time where Mark Ablett will be joined by another member of Pump Court Chambers. As ever, if anyone has any ideas for further topic areas, Mark and I would love to hear from you. And you can find our email addresses on the Pump Court website, www.pumpcourtchambers.com. Episodes are available to download or stream on iTunes, Spotify, Google and the Chambers website. Many thanks.